Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. I'll be the first to admit that growing a newsletter is hard. Podcasts and newsletters are out there as one of the hardest types of content to build an audience for. And that's why I want to tell you about a tool that's been a game changer for me. It's called Sparkloop. Sparkloop is the referral tool for newsletters. Basically, you can create a referral program that allows you to get more subscribers on autopilot. It connects with your email marketing tool of choice. It's got a generous 30-day free trial, and it works wonders. It's allowed me to grow my own newsletter much quicker than I could by myself, and I'm never going back to not having it. Check them out at sparkloop.app slash EIM. You can find the link in the show notes. On the show today is Val Geisler. She's the chief email officer of Fix My Churn. She's worked with many, many SaaS and e-commerce companies to improve their email marketing and retention. And I wanted to bring Val on because she is one of the go-tos for all things email marketing. She quite literally eats, breathes, and lives email. So you'll hear about how her background as a stage and event manager helped her build out her consulting practice and collaborate on email marketing with brands, how you can level up your transactional emails to build up your brand and upsell and even drive loyalty, and about her flagship dinner party strategy for setting up onboarding emails. So Val, I would love to know, to start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing email marketing for a living? <laughs> no, I don't think any email marketers <laughs> plan to do email marketing for a living. Like, um, I remember my first Litmus Live conference for email marketers that uh, that was kind of the the common denominator with everyone there is none of us planned to be working in email. Uh, email just like found us. Um, so no, I didn't plan to work in email. In fact, um, I went to school for theater. So, uh, and actually I know a lot of people, not just in email, but in marketing in general hmm. who went to school for theater. Really? So uh, a theater background, how, how far back does that go? How extensive is the theater background? Until when I was eight. Wow, really? <laughs> I was, yeah, I did like community theater stuff when I was eight. I played Jasmine in <laughs> Aladdin. Um, and, and then I was, I was terrible on stage. Um, and I found that my strengths were in the backstage arena. Mm. So um, I I did like community theater stuff. Um, I helped the director a lot in that. And then did theater in high school is where I really like got the bug. Um, spent all of my free periods in high school um, in the theater director's room and uh helping paint sets and uh pick out costumes and all those things and so i became a stage manager who is the person who makes sure everything happens how and when it's supposed to happen um and communicates from the director to everyone else um you know like what they actually mean um so i was stage manager in high school and we had a really great theater program in my high school it was really excellent for the state and then um i happened to live in ohio which is home of uh, the college conservatory of music at university of cincinnati and uh, ccm is a a conservatory program and it's called of music but it's there's music um and theater uh and musical theater um and opera and dance all of that combined uh so we had technical theater as well so all the backstage side of it 
Um, so I had a, have a degree in stage wow. management and theater production. Um, and I did that for, I don't know, six or eight years after I graduated. Hmm. So what, yeah, that's what I thought I'd be what, doing. What did that look like after college? You were still working within theater management or, or stage management. Um, is that following yeah. a tour? Is that sort of going um, city to city? Is that staying mm -hmm. home and sort of working with local? Like what, is it, what exactly does that entail? Um, a little bit of all of those things. So I never joined an official like national tour, although I really wanted to. Mm. Um, and but at the time, it was pretty competitive to get on a tour. Um, so and I just never really went that route. When I was in college, um, most of what I did was musical theater. Um, and I, when national tours would come to town, I would, uh, like intern with them. They always needed people to help out backstage and I would shadow the stage managers, like walking everywhere they went, uh, literally being their shadow. Uh, cause that's something I really was interested in. But then, um, the summer after I graduated, I worked at a, it's called a opera theater. Um, and an opera theater does both opera and musicals. And, um, so I was there for the musical aspect, but then p other companies started seeing opera theater on my resume and they saw a couple operas on my resume and decided I was an opera stage manager. <laughs> and quite honestly, opera is where the mus money is in, in stage management, um, in theater in general. So it's a different, um, different pay scale. And so I did a lot of opera after that, um, I did very few music musicals after that point. It's funny because everyone wanted to stage manage operas in college because they all knew that's where the money was post-college. Mm. So I ended up doing a lot of musicals and then I ended up professionally working in hmm. opera. Um, but yeah, I traveled the country. Uh, I was self-employed. Um, essentially, when you are an independent uh, theater person, you are you know, 1099 to everything, um, managing all of that yourself. And really kind of gig to gig, like um, sending your resume around constantly, um, looking for new opportunities, talking to people backstage about the next shows they were doing. Um, so I didn't really know what I was doing more than two or three months out at a time. Mm. Um, I did everything from like going city to city and try, you know, being in involved in different shows um, to living in one city. I got, got sick of traveling around a lot. So I lived in one city and took a nine month long contract, which is like a huge contract a long time. at the time. <laughs> it's a long time. It's like commitment, right. um, nine month contract uh, at a, another opera theater um, in Milwaukee. And so that was kind of my steadiest gig. Hmm. But, um, and then that, after that, I, I did a lot of work in Virginia and, um, at the uh, Virginia Opera and ended up spending more time in Virginia than I did in Milwaukee. And I had this apartment in Milwaukee and I was like, what am I doing? Paying rent in Milwaukee when I'm never here. Um, so I officially moved to Virginia after that. Wow. It was everything. The, the, all over the place. Do, do you still, yeah. do you feel like you, I mean, took anything from that that you still learn or that you still use today? Like what, what does someone take yeah. from theater and stage management into email marketing today? Um, everything. Uh, so like, no, I, do I te technically use my degree as written? No, but I use my degree every single day. Um, 
my dad has a degree in criminal justice, but he um, was a salesman his whole mm. life. And he, I'm the oldest of four kids. So he always says that he used his criminal justice degree every day in raising four <laughs> little kids. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think like I use the, well, first of all, I knew a lot about an Excel spreadsheet in college mm. that like I definitely make use of now. Um, I knew what a pivot table was as a freshman in college. Um, so I use a, a lot of that, like more technical knowledge. Um, and uh, and then the like organization, um, helping people see things through. So uh, communicating from one person to another. I worked with a director who she would just kind of like say things out loud and or she'd go up to the actor and she'd say something like, very quietly in the rehearsal room, she would just say, um, okay, so then, and then I want you to um, pick up, take a bite of the apple that you're holding. And so as the stage manager, you go, well, how did she get that apple? Where was it from? Um, is she supposed to walk across the stage and pick it up off of a table? Mm. Do we need a table there? What's happening? And so my job was to, to then ask the right questions to the director and then interpret that to then um, to the props department or the costume department. In that particular case, I remember um, she said, well, she pulls it out of her pocket in her dress. And so, okay, well now her big, beautiful dress, which is great, it can hide an apple, it's a giant skirt, but it needs a pocket. Right. And that pocket. she can easily access while singing to take a apple out and take a bite. And oh, it's an apple we have to take a bite of, so we need fresh apples every single show. Mm. Um, and then we have to ask the actor, is there a particular kind of apple that you enjoy eating? Um, you know, So you have to think about all those little things. And I think um, that has given me real perspective on, uh, you know, thinking through, okay, here's what the director ultimately wants. Here's what the performer needs to be successful at that. Um, here's what everyone who is supporting that performer needs to know in order to get to that point. Um, it, it helps frame marketing in general in that, um, you know, I consider marketing from all vantage points. Like what is the, what is the marketer, what does the marketer have to do um, to get the message across that the company wants to send? And then what is the experience that the customer is getting on the other side? Because ultimately theater is a performance. You're mm. eliciting a response from an audience, um, you know, eight shows a week. So you have to uh, think through all those parts and pieces and but ultimately know that it's about the audience. If the audience sits there and is not wowed, your show's not gonna last. Uh, so planning all those parts and pieces in the background help the show be successful. Oh. And I, while we're on this thread, I had heard that you still do some improv, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? <laughs> I did, well I did. Um, yeah, last year I took a improv class. Um, and it was interesting. Most of the people in the class were there uh, because they are a teacher and wanted to have more fun in front of their classroom or um, were giving presentations a lot at work and wanted to feel more comfortable with that. Very few people were there for like theater or improv purposes. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think like some of my theater background uh, influenced me in, in that improv class, but that's the most I've kind of been on stage uh, in my probably ex except for when I was eight, um, you know, in community theater. Yeah. So, so what, what was the bridge that got you into marketing? I mean, going from uh, stage management and the whole world of theater and opera to email marketing, especially is a sort of a, a, a drastic jump, right? So what was the bridge? 
for sure. Well, okay, so the through line is the customer experience, right? Okay, so theater is about a customer's experience. It's the audience. That's the customer. Um, after theater, I, uh, I got a job at a botanical garden that um, the person who was hiring me had an art degree and she recognized that a theater degree translated well. I worked in the events department at the botanical garden. So she's like, okay, weddings and special events are miniature theater events. If she can organize a whole theatrical production, she can organize weddings. Um, So she hired me to do that. And um, so I built some kind of like marketing skills working for a nonprofit, um, just kind of observing what they were doing. Uh, through the connections I made there, I ended up working for Marriott for a little while. So then I also saw this kind of massive organization um, doing marketing and similar position. I was doing uh, sales for the um, event department Mm. at a hotel. And and then I worked for Lululemon. (laughs) Um, So at the time, Lululemon was really new to the US um, and they were opening what they called showrooms um, and showrooms are like miniature versions of a store. It's how they test. Um, so a showroom opens in a new city that they think they want to put a store in. Um, they will open a showroom for, you know, three or four days a week. And then the rest of the time, the staff for that showroom is out in the community hmm. um, connecting with people who are in different areas of fitness and well-being. Um, the and then the showroom is is core product only so it's like the best seller product uh that comes into the showroom so you kind of get a feel of will this community want a full store here you know a 20 25 person team and uh small hours and all those things like can we really invest here um and what's interesting about lululemon is that they uh, they really empower their team members and especially their leadership pipeline to uh, go take what they learn at the store and take it out into the world. So they they say like we don't want you to work at Lululemon for the rest of your life unless that's what you want to mm. do. Um, and if you want to learn something here and go out and do something else with it, then we want to support you in that. So my job was I was a showroom manager and then a store manager. Um, and, you know, my job was to throw special events in the community to connect people, to think about what's that experience of someone coming in and experiencing the brand for the first time. Um, and so I had the opportunity to take this. They handed me a budget and a spreadsheet and said, here's your product. We're going to put product in the showroom for you. I picked the location. I picked my team. Um, I picked how many events we did each month. I had a budget for that, um, what we included, what we didn't include. All of that was on me to make those decisions. So I feel like I learned a lot about running my own business. Mm. I just had somebody else's money to play with um, and brand uh, at reputation. So, um, So I opened a store for them after this showroom was successful. And then um, after the store, you know, kind of the next step was for me was what am I going to do with all these skills? Um, and I decided I really wanted to work for myself. Um, and through the store and through various events, mostly the events that I was host- holding in those cities, uh, I was meeting people who owned businesses, um, mm. someone who owned a 
t-shirt company and someone who owned a life coaching company and um, a few different people along the way. And they all needed things done for them. And I was like, well, I can do those things. Like I know how to load a blog into WordPress. I know how to um, coordinate projects for your t-shirt company. So I just built this, okay, well, what if I have, what if I did work with like four different people and how much would they need to pay me to replace my current salary? And so I did that kind of backwards math and I took a big leap one day um, and that was over 10 years ago. So, wow. um, yeah. And, you know, in my, like running my own business, I, I guess like I started out as a virtual assistant. Hmm. Um, that was essentially what I was. And then through that, doing a lot of project management, all of it though, I was always considering what is the customer's experience of this. Um, and then I ended up, I was, <laughs> I was focused on kind of customer onboarding, like what is it like to be a new customer? And I was um, running my own business. So I had heard about this new software called ConvertKit and uh, was signed up for it and realized there were some like gaps in the customer onboarding mm. from my experience. So I reached out and I um, chatted with, the team was like four people at the time, um, chatted with a few people there and ended up um, being offered a, a job of like, hey, we need someone to write on our blog. I've read your blog and I really like your writing. Um, then you can also run our emails and um, you know, basically I was the first marketing person mm -hmm. on the team there. Um, so I learned email a lot through working at an ESP. Right. And then when I left there, it felt like, the natural progression was to continue to focus on email marketing. Mm. Um, I tried being like a generalist marketer, but it just didn't work out. Mm. Uh, I really kept focusing on these like email projects. And so that's where I decided to just stay. Yeah. I love it, man. Like you said, ne no one ever uh, grows up wanting to be an email marketer, but th the thread line <laughs> through all this, right, is the customer experience, is the event and project management side of things. And then eventually yeah. getting into email. And I love how, uh, basically you were offering advice to convert kit of, Hey, here's some gaps I see and some things that you should do. And that actually landed you a job and was sort of the Kickstarter you need to, to be in this whole world of, of email marketing. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, I'd been running my own business for seven years at that point, six or seven years. And I just felt like, yeah, I could, I could do a like regular job for a little while. I think that that would feel really good. Um, and to focus on one thing, yeah. it's hard to be on your own and have, um, everybody says like, oh, well, you don't have a boss. No, you have seven bosses mm -hmm. or however many clients you have. Um, so it was nice to kind of just think about one thing for a little while. And it, it allowed me the time to learn about email in a really deep way, um, and fall in love with it. So. Yeah, I love it. Um, what what exactly did, did you do at uh, ConvertKit? I know that you mentioned sort of writing, blogging, handed the email marketing, but what was sort of the, the all-encompassing <laughs> legacy at, at ConvertKit? I don't know what my like job title was. <laughs> um, all the things. Yeah, I did all the marketing at first. Um, I did, uh, let's see. Okay, so I wrote the blog. Um, I started the blog basically, uh, what, obviously what the blog is today is very different than what it was. Um, but I started a regularly published blog, um, built out like proper email onboarding for new subscribers, new customers. 
Um, I answered a lot of customer support tickets. Um, and I started a podcast there. So it was a lot of like kind of what needed to be done mm. um, when you're, I was the seventh hire there. So when you're in an early stage startup, you do a lot of whatever needs to be done. Um, you know, I worked on like, I helped engineering with product design and in-app messaging and um, the little onboarding checklist. I don't know if that still exists in the product or not, but you know, those kinds of things, like you have your hands in a lot um, when you're at a brand new not even brand new, but like a young startup. Right. Small, um, scrappy, to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. I I knew that I worked in marketing. I don't know what if I had a job title at any particular point, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And then after that, you decided to branch out on your own again um, and yeah. kind of start over again. And I think one of the interesting parts was now you're in this world of email. And that was, I think maybe one of the more defining moments you said, I'm going to do this whole email copywriting thing full time, yeah. really focus in on that. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? Like, tell me about the moment that you decided to struck out uh, again and sort of market yourself and put yourself back in the, in the consulting game. Um, it was largely a, a time thing. Um, I had had a baby and came back to work for a little while and knew that I did not have the time to devote to a full time job um being having a new baby and uh taking care of her and taking care of myself i was nursing and so it's like nursing alone is a major time commitment um so and you know this is like this is a much bigger problem to <laughs> for a different podcast um but yeah f figuring out that that balance of like um how many hours do i need to commit to taking care of myself and my child on a daily basis and how can and how much do I have to invest in childcare um and then how much how much time is left for work mm. and so there was wasn't enough time for me to fill a full-time role so I um knew that I needed to do some kind of consulting and I had some contacts from having been there that I reached out to and uh, ended up doing kind of like I said, that generalist marketer stuff um, just to kind of get that consulting back up and running. Um, and in doing that, you know, the companies would come to me with like, here's our huge list of things that we want to accomplish. And I would always point to the email projects first. Mm. Cause I just knew like after having been seen it on the backside, like I watched, you know, when I left, we had 15,000 customers. Um, and so I watched 15,000 people, um, grow their email lists and grow their businesses because they emailed and, uh, you know, so I knew what was possible and was able to apply it to this endless list of things that, you know, by focusing there, look, you have these five things on your list that actually can be accomplished by focusing on your email. Mm. Um, so I built a lot of email campaigns and, and at the time I was following, uh, Philip Morgan. So he's Philip Morgan consulting online. Uh, Philip teaches specialization to, um, to engineers and, it's like, like consultants and um, freelance engineers. And I knew that I could take the word engineer and replace it with copywriter and take 90% of what he was saying mm. and apply it to my business. 
Um, and that's been like my my business hack uh, ever since then is that and life hack really is that I can learn from something that feels like it's not at all for me. I can take 90% most of the time of what it offers and apply it and it still works. Um, so I learned a lot from Philip about um, specialization and the power of it. And so I just decided like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I specialized in email marketing and have grown that ever since. And I don't, I, um, <laughs> I have tried to do other things. Um, but people keep asking me about email. Mm. So I'm, I'm here. Yeah. I love that. I think the, the, the specialization lesson is so important because both on a personal level and on a company level, like I think people are, very hesitant to, well, if I only do this one thing, then, you know, I'm leaving money on the table because there's all these other companies that want me to do these other things. Right. And even on a company right. level, it's, well, right. we don't want to exclude this part of the market or just kind of pigeonhole ourselves into this type of customer because then we're missing out on this whole big opportunity. But really it's actually the specialization that, um, allows you to do more and also stand out, you know, cause there's a lot of other people out there that can do something similar, right? But there might only be one person that can do the thing that you do best, right? Yeah. And you know, what I hear from my clients is like, we, we want someone who knows this area really well. Um, you see specialization, like, um, brands happily hire a, a Facebook ads specialist, um, because that seems like, okay, well you can't, run a Facebook ad unless you understand the back end of the ad platform. And um, there's so much technicality to get. And yet on the marketing side, everybody thinks they can do email. Mm. Everybody thinks they know how. Um, and so, but I hear from my clients, like we wanted a specialist who knew how to handle email. Like we don't have the time or bandwidth to, to understand everything there is to know about email. And that's like your, your job. It also made my job easier as just as a human, like as a marketer, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to know how to run Facebook ads that then track to my email list and then also know about emails and then also know, um, you know, like on site conversions. And I, I don't have to know all of that um, because I don't want to. And so I get to know a lot about one thing that really interests me. And so I get to like go really deep there and let everything else go and let other people take those things on. Yeah. So I'd love to uh, extract some of that specialization knowledge and get into some of the nitty gritty okay. of email. Um, maybe we can start here. Like what's holding companies back from fully utilizing email? Um, when, you, when you come into a new project or you start to you know talk to a new client, um, what are the, usually the things that are holding people back from really being able to take advantage of it? I think most of the time brands are copying what they see other brands doing mm. and and you know putting their own words on it um but it's the same the same kind of campaigns the same kind of flows um the i mean how many times have you bought something and immediately gotten a refer a friend email um like the give 20 get 20 you just I mean, especially in the next week, we're recording this the week of Black Friday. Over the next week, you're probably going to see 10 of those alone. Right. Um, so it's like everyone's just doing what everyone else is doing. And we're doing that because it works. 
Um, so it works for these other brands and it probably mostly works for you. Um, but it's not working as great as it could be. Mm. And I think brands are too scared to do something a little bit different. And so a lot of what I'm doing is convincing my clients to try something. Um, it's one reason I talk so much and so often about testing um, because I I want my clients to come into working with us as a, in a testing mindset. Like let's test the existing campaigns against some new ones that that will build um, and you know that are based on customer research. And I think that that's another gap is that we aren't talking to our customers enough. Mm. Um, but so we're just like blindly copying what other brands are doing, not talking to our customers to understand what they want and what they need. And, and so it's, it's working ish, but it's not as good as it can be. Um, and there's just like so much, so much opportunity. I, I saw the other day there was like, uh, somebody's like, oh man, so many breakthroughs from this, um, email workshop. And it was, um, like segment your list. And, um, they like listed these breakthroughs that they had. And I was like, man, the bar is so low, <laughs> right, right? Right. Like if a massive breakthrough that you had on a wor workshop was to segment your list, like we've got, we got a lot of work to do yeah. in email. Um, and so you know, there's a ton of opportunities, but I think the biggest ones are, you know, copying what everyone else is doing and then, and, and in doing that, ignoring your actual customers. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned the customer research being part of that, right. And basically, uh, mm. being also the, the antithesis of, uh, you know, copying your, your, your competitors or even just other players in the space. And then basically you're just kind of like rinsing, repeating the same strategies, but how does customer research actually play into email marketing, reducing churn, you know, making the most of email? Yeah. It gives you the words that your customers use to talk about your product. Um, so it's that I don't, I know that men don't do this as often as women do, but there's a thing that women do where somebody says like, Hey, I like your shirt. And you're, and then, um, you'll respond like, Oh, thanks. I got it at this little boutique downtown. And it's, man, it's so, it's so cozy. Feel it. Um, uh, like you can't even imagine, like, I, I didn't think this kind of fabric was possible at this price. Like the, these kinds of things that we say to our friends, um, or even just random people on the internet, because right. that's like, for some reason, women have been trained to do have that response. I think it's a little bit of a self-deprecation thing where we're like, oh, I got it for $9 at Target. Mm. Um, like, it, I'm not worth anything more than that. But uh, but it is a, it's a thing that happens when you talk to friends about something that you really enjoy. Um, and when you talk to your customers and not just about your product, like not in customer support tickets or um, in your Facebook group or whatever you have, but in, uh, in actual conversations about them and the problems that they're trying to solve and why they keep coming back to you or why they chose not to come to you when they thought that they might. Uh, when you have those conversations about them, um, you get those words that they use to talk about the product. And if you're selling a shirt and somebody, it, you send an email that has like, you know, the words in it, I never thought fabric this soft was possible at this price point. And you can use that 
for your copy and whether it's a subject line or a call to action or a headline inside of an email or even just a true quote of a customer um it helps people connect and you know it helps people go oh okay like i'm buying this thing on the internet and i don't it's not tangible for me so how can i better understand it well through the words of actual customers Mm. um and if all we're doing is selling the images and uh and I, you know, even on the software side, like all we're doing is selling features. Um, we aren't talking about the benefits. We aren't talking about what the product is going to do for the customers. Because hmm. um, we're so proud of our features. And why shouldn't we be? We worked really hard. We did tons of research. Um, we spent a lot of money on our team to build this product in a certain way. So we want to tell everyone about it. Um, but I don't know that my t-shirt is made of like, you know, whatever, 40% polyester and um, 30% organic cotton. Like, I don't know any of those things, right. but I know it's the softest t-shirt I own. Um, so, and and that it was like crazy cheap for how soft it is, mm. right? So um, I just think if you're, if you're using those customers' words and not your own, you get further with both your existing customers and your potential customers. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's one of the things I always harp on for someone trying to get into copywriting or is curious about the process is like, you know, actually the best copywriters really don't like make up any of the copy that they're writing. It's no. not some sort of, you know, quippy process where you're just kind of sitting there brainstorming all these witty slogans. Like you're really just looking through transcripts and you're talking to people and you're looking, you know, running surveys, trying to extract these little nuggets of how people describe things, what the words are and, and um, reading between the lines, right, of what the, the value proposition actually is versus uh, what, you know, maybe they might be regurgitating back to you because you've been, you know, nailing into the into their brain for so long. So for someone who really wants to get into that and wants to interview their customers and be able to find those nuggets that they can use for their value props, like what's your process for interviewing customers? Do you have a specific, um, you know, uh, philosophy or framework mm-hmm. or sort of process that you use to get uh, insights over and over again? Yeah, I love jobs to be done. Um, so jobs is it comes from the product world. And um, the idea is that your customer has a job that your product is doing for them. Um, and it's typically not what we're selling. So uh, there's lots of lots of information on the internet about jobs. Um, so you can literally just Google jobs to be done and find a whole world of information. Um, I personally follow the Chris Speak and Bob Moesta model. They're um, some of the original jobs guys out there, and they have an incredible website. Um, and Bob still teaches workshops quite often online. Um, and you know, the I think he actually has a a new book coming out very soon. Um, but there's the idea is you're t- asking questions that are about them and not about your product Hmm. um your product can be like in involved right so um you know uh what was happening in your life when you first came to our website or first heard about this product um you know thinking back asking them to think back to what was happening in their life um things like that where you can really get at what was going on that made them want to come to you in the first place and then, um, okay, so that was happening. Then what was happening when you were on the website or when you were checking out the product that made you go, 
oh, this is exactly what I need, or this is, you know, this is the right solution for me, because you stuck around. So you made a purchase, you stuck around, you're here. What made you think like this is the right thing? And then they'll, you know, they'll remember or they won't. Um, and, and they'll give you all that information. And you just kind of keep going down that thread, right? Um, the hard and beautiful thing about it is that it's qualitative data. It's super long form. Um, you're getting minutes of conversation. Like I'm talking one-to-one interviews like we're doing um, where you are talking to another human for, you know, 30-ish minutes about their experience and their, their problems that they face mm. um, and how they're solving it in relationship to your product. Yeah. So it's, you know, I say it's like, it's beautiful because you get their real actual words. Um, it's hard because you have to figure out how to extrapolate uh, the right words into some kind of usable format. Um, and people do it all kinds of different ways. Uh, you know, tagging up a um, an air table or there's research tools like Dovetail that help do some of those things. Um, you can highlight words that show up over and over again. One thing I used to do is I would run surveys um, prior to interviews. I still do that. Um, but I used to do a lot in Excel spreadsheets. And um, so the surveys come back in CSV format. And I would uh, command F is where you can find a particular word. Um, and I, if there was a word or phrase that stuck out to me, I would command F and then add that word or phrase into the box and see how many times it showed up. And if it showed up a bunch, then I would highlight it mm. and, um, you know, note that this is a common phrase. So, um, there's all different ways you can distill the information. I think the most important thing though, is to start collecting it. Hmm. Cause then once you start collecting it, then you have something that's uh, a primary source instead of a guess, right. Or something that you made up yourself or something that you're sort of uh, trying to work from scratch writers. Yeah. Yeah. For example, I, uh, we have a client who has a food brand and in one of the conversations uh, in, in a customer interview, um, they, they said something about like, Oh, well, I, I just like to, uh, you know, why do you not just go to the store and buy, a, com- a competitor brand um, because this is something you have to buy online. It, they don't, it's not sold in stores and there are competitors in stores. And so the response is like, well, I just like to buy it online and just have it all shipped to me and I just stock up on what I need. Mm. Um, and so then we're able to in like a button copy is I want to stock up or let, let me stock up or, you know, or just stock up, right? It's better than um, shop now or um, buy it or whatever. Um, So it's the real words that customers are using and you get to copy and paste it into, (laughs) yeah. You you don't have to be a copywriter. You can be a copy paster. Right, a copy paster. I love that. I should go on a t-shirt. Maybe I'll make that. Uh, (laughs) So getting into a little bit to more kind of the tactical side of things, like what are the table stakes, email marketing strategies and techniques that you're using for uh, SaaS and e-commerce companies. I'm also kind of curious, you know, like what the differences are between each of them. And cause I know that there are nuances obviously between the different industries. Yeah. It's interesting. Like working in both, a lot of e-commerce companies are like, well, it looks like you've worked with a lot of SaaS. Oh, I, you know, how do we know it'll work in e-commerce? Um, and, and kind of vice versa, SaaS companies are saying like, you're doing more and more with e-commerce. <laughs> uh, how do you have your pulse on what's going on in SaaS? 
what's interesting is that if you're a subscription-based brand, it's kind of all the same. Mm. Um, and SaaS is inherently subscription and um, much of e-commerce is becoming more and more subscription. Um, and so it's really cool. I get to like borrow what SaaS has known for years and bring it into e-commerce. And then e-commerce, like I'm writing uh, abandoned cart sequences for uh, SaaS products, mm. which you know is traditionally an e-commerce thing. But it's totally doable. So you can learn from this is that 90% thing, right? Like 90% of what's happening in SaaS can be applied to e-commerce and vice versa. Hmm. Um, so I think that the, you know, there's each has their own priorities when it comes to email. Um, and it also depends on kind of your model, right? Like if you're a free trial versus a paid trial, um, if you take a credit card versus not taking a credit card and that's on SaaS and then e-commerce is like, uh, are you a luxury brand or a discount brand? Um, you know, are you a subscription brand? Are you, you know, getting people to a second purchase and, you know, individual purchases? Um, so there's a lot of considerations. I think the welcome slash onboarding is the most important to consider. What's that first experience people have of your brand? Sometimes that's buying your product, signing up for the free trial, uh, making a purchase on your e-com website. Probably more often than not, and it's worth digging into your metrics, people are signing up to your email list first and experiencing your brand and then deciding if they want to invest or not. Hmm. That's especially true on e-commerce because we as marketers have trained consumers to want a discount. And so they sign up for emails to get a discount. Um, so that kind of initial experience of the brand is so important. Um, it's, when they sign up for your emails, they're at their highest interest point. If they aren't just going ahead and purchasing, they're at their highest interest point of with your brand. It's the time that they care the most. And so you have to give them a really good experience. Um, and so in SaaS, it's, you know, it's like welcome or onboarding. And in e-commerce, it's typically called a welcome series um, or welcome flow. And so that's super important. Um, and then the, the kind of opposite of that is the post-purchase. So once they sign up, um, in SAS, if they sign up for your free trial and you're trying to get them to convert to paid, um, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about from the moment that they decide to put down money, uh, in e-commerce once they make that purchase. What I see happening a lot is we email and email and email, and then they, decide to make a purchase either because they feel a lot of pressure to or because <laughs> um or because they actually decided to and and then we don't talk to them anymore except for that receipt and then every month they get the receipt but you never hear from that they never hear from you mm. um you probably send out product updates every couple of months like here's all the things we made um that has nothing to do with your customers and customers feel a lot like they're just a credit card when uh, when they have that experience of mm -hmm. your brand. And there is too much competition in the world right now. Um, I, I'm a person who believes that there's no such thing as competition, like other email marketers, other agencies and um, other speakers and all those things. They're not competition to me. They're colleagues and um, there's enough work to go around and there's enough customers to go around for sure. And there are a lot of shiny objects in the world. And it's super easy if a customer feels like all they are is a credit card to you, it's super easy to go and try out another brand. 
try out another scheduling software, right. try out another peanut butter. Um, try, you know, all these like it, there's a million options at our fingertips. So you have to build that relationship with your customers. Hmm. Um, marketing is about building relationships. Sales is about buying. Yeah. Uh, so, and we're marketers. So it's all about relationships. I think um, yeah. one of the things that was going through my head while you were talking about that was that uh, I never really thought about it before, but before someone um, feels comfortable experiencing the product, they have to experience the brand. Um, yeah. But then after they experience the product, they need to experience the brand again, right? You can't just like leave that out just because they've kind of checked that box, right? And then you have to right. re-loop them back into the brand and make sure that they're sort of kept within that ecosystem and that you maintain the relationship. It's almost more important afterwards, right? Like um, reiterating why you do what you do. So um, let's take Bombas as an example, uh, socks. So they have this um, buy one, get one or give one um, mission in the world. So you buy a pair of socks, they give a pair of socks to someone in need. And that's very loud and clear in their marketing pre-sale, but it's also part of their post-sale marketing mm. um, because, you know, then you have, as a customer, you have this experience of, I invested money in this company and yeah, yeah, I invested money in it for my purpose of covering my feet, but like I paid money to this company and some of that money is going toward someone else who needs it. Mm. And if they don't continue to tell me that, I'm most likely going to forget. And then I'm going to look at my socks. And, you know, if I feel like I don't really connect to the product, I might not co keep coming back. Um, you do have to have a strong product. But I think like telling that story and involving your customers in the overall experience of your brand is super important. Introduce them to the team, um, they're going to send in customer support tickets. So send some emails from your customer support team, because then they might interact with Andy on customer support when mm -hmm. they write in and then they'll go, Oh, Andy sent me an email on Tuesday. That's so cool. Like now I feel like I know Andy right. just cause he like had an, his name on an automated email. Mm. It's true. I mean, even as a marketer, I know what's happening and I still feel more connected to a brand when I know people behind the brand. Right. Even if you know that it's an automated sequence or yes. that it's sort of yeah. a, <clears throat> just a trigger, right. That, that pops up. Um, one, one of the other great kind of frameworks and things I love that you've pioneered is sort of this, uh, dinner party strategy, right. Speaking of, um, making it more personal and looping people in, could you walk me through, you know, what that is? I know you've probably talked about it a million times, but it's just such a great framework okay. to think about how to make, uh, the brand experience more personal. Yeah. So, First, I'll start by saying you can get a download of everything I'm going to say and like so much more uh, if you go to fixmyturn.com slash TDPS for the dinner party strategy. I reference uh, it all the time. <laughs> good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, it's essentially the, the idea is you, most of us have experienced a dinner party either as a host or as someone attending, not recently, but hopefully in your life. Um, and so the idea is that the inbox is kind of the most private area that we have in an online space. It's something we have to, we give people our email address to get access to. And so it is a place that we really kind of protect. Um, and so it's like walking into somebody's virtual living room. And if you walked, if, if somebody walked into your dinner party and you're standing there holding, you know, pork chops and a glass of wine at the door. <laughs> and they're, they're like, 
what's happening? Uh, like I still have my coat on. Um, I need to come in and can I use the restroom please? And um, like, I'm, I want to meet the people here. So you have to, you have to warm people up uh, just like you do at a dinner party. You welcome them. You show them around the house. You introduce them to other people. You're serving appetizers because the food's still cooking. Um, you know, you and then you finally all sit down to a meal and you don't just have pork chops. You have uh, sweet potatoes and you have applesauce and you have, uh, you know, all the things that go with the meal. It's not just the main course. Um, and then you, hopefully everybody enjoys themselves and you can keep coming back. Um, but the idea with email is very similar. You want to welcome people before you start shoving your product in their face. Make them feel at home. Help them connect with the people that are part of the brand. Um, connect with the rest of the community. Like, is there a Facebook group or a Slack community? Um, or a podcast that you have? Like, there's all different ways we can create community. So help them connect. And then... Uh, then you get to start to talk about the product. Uh, and I would give this example of, um, you know, if everyone that comes to my dinner party is very um, conscious of where they get their food and they're like, you know, local shoppers and um, they're, <laughs> if I'm serving, let's say those pork chops, I'm not going to tell the story at dinner um, that, you know, oh, well, <laughs> it, uh, I spent 30 minutes driving to go get these pork chops and there were, I hit every single red light, but I got there and I really wanted to make sure I got these pork chops for you. And you know, I got the, I got the very best cut I could get. And the, this is, they were $30. And like, <laughs> this is the story that we're telling as product people to our customers, how much time it took. Like we spent six months working on this feature. Mm. Nobody cares. The people at my dinner party care that I bought those pork chops from a local farmer and that the pigs were grass fed and pasture raised and that they lived a long, happy life and um, and that the farmer gives back to the community. And so I can tell that story at dinner. And then my guests are really happy and interested in coming back to another dinner party because they know that I know what they care about. So if you translate that into marketing, um, you know, it's... It's talking about the benefits versus the features. It's talking about the things that matter to your customers versus the things that you slaved over. Nobody cares. Right. <laughs> Quite honestly, nobody cares. Um, they care about what's in it for them. Hmm. They don't care what your thing is called. They don't care how many months it took you to make it. They don't care how many new team members you brought on to build it. Um, they care what it does for them. And most of the time it's, how much money it's going to make them or what problem it's going to solve for them. That's what you want to talk about. Hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, you know, every time I, I think about, okay, well, how can I even, uh, outside of the whole world of email marketing, just sort of create, you know, design a brand experience or design, um, some sort of, uh, new experience for someone to, to kind of come in and to understand what we're all about. I always go back to, you know, the welcome, the appetizer, the main dish, the dessert, the invite back, just because it's such a great, sort of life cycle of how to think about your relationship with your customers, right? And, and sort yeah. of putting it into words. And like you said, um, if you really think about sort of the first principles of what each of those, you know, what is the purpose of a welcome email? What is the purpose of um, sort of a main dish, right? We're really talking about the product and, and when is that appropriate to, to you know, to, to place within the brand experience and the sequence. Um, right. But for, for someone who's wondering about, uh, okay, I have, you know, the, the basics in place, 
I'm, I'm doing all the right things. I have, you know, my, my dinner party strategy implemented. What are the advanced email marketing tactics and techniques uh, that, you're, that you're seeing work really well or that you think are interesting? Yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest opportunities is segmenting. Like that's, I mm. joke that that's like a big aha for people, um, but it truly is uh, like segmenting your list, understanding who they are, what experience they've had, um, speaking to them based on what has happened. Um, you know, you see this in e-commerce uh, like, hey, you haven't shopped with us in three months. Here's a coupon code to come back. Um, so that's acknowledging the experience that that person has with the brand. Is that the best way to do it? No, because um, you need to like find out more. That's not, it's not because they wanted 10% off that they didn't shop with you for three months. So right. like what is actually happening? Um, but, you know, understanding the personal journey that every single person is on with your brand and segmenting the list from there and being able to deliver content that, um, you know, where I'm, we're really moving away as a company. We're really moving away from, um, time-based emails. Hmm. We do very few of them where it's based on, you know, five days have passed, 14 days have passed. Um, we'll do some of those, but we are much more interested in behavior-based emails hmm. and emails that are, uh, you know, triggered based on what, areas of the app they're accessing, um, what actions they're taking, how busy they are, how not busy they are, um, how many times they've purchased versus how few times they've purchased. How many times did they go into their dashboard of their account? Um, Cause that's like, did they click on the billing page? What's going on? Mm. Um, you know, so considering all those different actions and it does take, it takes some thought and uh, you can't do everything all at once. And this is where I think most people get tripped up with segmenting as they feel like, okay, well, we're going to do these three segments, but then what about these other five? And then if you do those, then you need to do these other, and like it becomes this massive project, but you can just start small. Um, and, and just acknowledge like, okay, well, let's take the people who are active and separate them out from the people who are less active. Um, and create special messaging for each level of customer. Hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, um, I always think about too, with, within, uh, I mean your role, but again, any marketer who's coming into a brand and who's really trying to, you know, ramp up their email marketing and, um, maybe put a refreshing spin on things is that every brand has their own voice and ideally it's, you know, mm -hmm. matching and sort of echoing the voice, the voice of their customer. Um, and as a consultant, you have to come in and either, define that voice or you have to adopt it and iterate on it. So how do you mm -hmm. approach um, really kind of trying to nail in uh, or hone in on the copy that you're writing for your clients? I go back to the customers. Um, and even if they've like already defined a brand voice, I make sure that that is true to what the customers are saying. Mm. And I have a lot of conversations about, we need to redefine this brand voice and look at what your customers are actually saying. Cause we're, quite often creating brand voices in the bubble of avatars and, um, you know, our, whatever our marketing research, um, team put together, but that's not reality. Reality is your customers. So what are they saying? What's their voice like? Um, you might describe your brand a certain way. Um, but if you're, if your customers describe it a different way, then you aren't connecting with them. So I always go back to the research. If you, it, you know, I have a client who 
we heard the word badass over and over and over again in every interview and in every survey response. Like, it's just badass. It makes me feel badass. I Like, that was the predominant word. And they had never thought to use that word before in their marketing. Mm. They've used lots of other words. But like, that's the word that your customers are using. And it might not be the word that you wish you that they used, but it is the word they're using. So right. let's use it. <clears throat> right. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. Um, Speaking of the brand voice, one of the things I thought was interesting uh, was some of the emails that you've really worked on that you've kind of championed is transactional email, which is not something Mm -hmm. that most people talk about or care a lot about, but uh, yet you've gifted the world with a very comprehensive guide to quote unquote non-sucky SaaS transactional email. Could you walk me through that a little bit and how you thought through that whole process and, um, you know, why it's important for for people to, to pay attention to? Well, I started caring about transactional emails because I get a lot of them and most of them suck. Hmm. Um, They're like from admin and then they say your invoice uh, has been fulfilled or whatever. You know, it's like very vague language. Most of the time I don't even know who it's actually from unless I click on the email address to see like what domain this is coming from. Oh, right. Um, But, you know, again, if you're only ever talking to your customers with that monthly invoice, then that's your only opportunity to talk to them, to show them who you are and to infuse your brand voice into things. And it can be as simple as like, hey, you know, from the 50 of us directly to you, uh, we, we appreciate you and we know you have lots of options, but thanks for continuing to support us. And, um, you know, that could be on your monthly invoice as a SaaS company, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, on, you know, please, if you have an e-commerce company, go into Shopify and update your emails so that they're not the exact same as everyone else's emails post-purchase. Right. Um, you know, we like default to these templates because we want to get things up and running and it's great, get things up and running, but then go back and put brand voice and personality into the like ongoing experience that your customers have. I mean, e-commerce post-purchase from the moment you hit purchase, you get anywhere from at minimum three, I've seen up to like six or seven emails that are transactional in nature that happen between the purchase and the delivery. Hmm. That's a lot of opportunities for communication about the brand, about, uh, you know, the, the, again, the words that they're using um, and a lot of opportunities to get really personal. And it's just such a waste of space most of the time. Yeah. When you're looking at uh, what to optimize, where to look, um, you know, you, you had mentioned sort of looking at your, your metrics and analytics a little bit earlier. One of the interesting conversations that's happening right now is around privacy and tracking. And you, know, you have one yeah. side that says that tracking is evil and should be banned. And then you have another side that says there's nothing wrong with it and that you know marketers need it to do their job well. Um, where do you sit you know, between those two camps? Sort of what, what are your thoughts on the whole dilemma? Um, we get this question a lot lately as email marketers and um, most of us say well the tools that don't allow tracking um, they might feel like they're kind of taking over but they're not they're not the market share and so we're not worrying about them Um, we don't design emails for every single possible uh, inbox out there. We design emails for the most popular inboxes, Gmail, Yahoo, Outlook, um, you know, maybe one or two others. Uh, But 
we don't uh, Apple mail. Um, you know, we, we don't design for every, we don't consider every single possibility. We consider what the majority are experiencing. Um, and we do as email marketers, we do need to know what's happening. Like that's that behavior based emails. Um, you think about it, it. Sure. You don't want people knowing what you're doing. Okay, great. So are you okay then with getting emails that don't pertain to you? Or that um, are like they they just aren't they're just filling up your inbox you know um, if you make a purchase and a brand continues to send emails encouraging you to purchase <laughs> the thing you just purchased um, that's frustrating so I think tracking is an important thing as long as it's used for good and not for evil um, in in that way like let's use tracking for um, to give customers the best possible experience. Um, if you're using tracking just to like see if somebody opened an email, um, then that's just kind of gross. But um, if it's to, if it's serving the purpose of creating a better experience for the customer, I think it's a worthwhile thing to keep around. Hmm. What about email design, uh, which is another kind of common debate or thing that people try to go back and forth on is um, the appropriate time or maybe even the, the way that it fits within the brand uh, going plain text versus the full, you know, HTML, CSS, uh, yeah. branded email. Like where, where do you sit on the email design? I believe that when you're building a relationship, text-based is a stronger way to go. Um, and so building relationships are like life cycle campaigns, welcome emails, uh, post-purchase flows, uh, retention campaigns, short-term, long-term. Um, win back campaigns, all those places are places to infuse humans into the process and uh, humans equal words. So uh, text-based emails are the, um, for me, that's the focus in relationship building hmm. uh, campaigns. Um, when you're selling and when you're talking about your product, sure, build out a beautiful templated email. Um, but yeah, when you're trying to build a relationship, um, then I think less is more. Hmm trying to play a devil's advocate here a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, like what are the nuances between uh, like the world of e-commerce versus SaaS? Like I see, for example, that a lot of SaaS companies will use uh, very well-designed kind of branded emails, even for things like, um, you know, product updates or maybe mm -hmm. just, you know, uh, talking about sort of a new feature or maybe it's one of those automated sequences where um, so they're trying to walk you through the product and how to use it um, versus for e-commerce. It's very, uh, branded as well, but are, there might be opportunities for it to be more text-based if it's uh, maybe more about support or getting out of the team, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is it is it that brands should think about uh, using both or like you said, one or the other or, or how should brands really think about when to use email or uh, branded versus plain text? Yeah, so um, text-based is different than plain text. So text-based is like, there can still be images mm. that support your text. Right. Um, but to me, it's like the images support the text. In in the alternative, the text supports the image. And that's something that's missing basically across the board is, I see a lot of like videos inside of, or a screenshot of a video to click and go to Vimeo or wherever and watch it. Um, the uh, There's typically very little that, speaks to that video in the text of the email. Um, mm. Same thing in e-commerce. Um, if there's a, 
oh, this is the worst when there's like, okay, you're having a 30% off sale and the copy 30% off sale is on top of an image and it's never anywhere else in the email. If your customers don't have images displayed um, for any other like accessibility based reason, they aren't going to know that you are having that sale. Um, So you're, you always have to have text supporting the image and images supporting the text. I don't think for the most part, there are, there are a few occasions, but um, for the most part, you can't just send text only. Um, I think that text only is worth testing. Uh, and there are times where like, I give this example a lot, Everlane does this thing where um, they'll send like their big fancy branded email for their new product drop on a Thursday. And then on Sunday, they'll send a, another te- email, but it's text-based and it's inline links. And it says um, like, hey, here's, you know, we dropped th- th- these new pants came in on Thursday and here's what people are saying. And uh, if you missed a chance on Thursday, if you missed it, here's the the link to go grab them now. Mm. Um, so, and it's just like, it's thinking about that, you know, we all learn in different ways. We all experience things in different ways. So why are we sending the exact same emails to everybody all the time and expecting better results every single time? You have to test yeah. it. Yeah. Speaking about uh, accessibility, what do people need to know about that? Again, one of those things that not a lot of people talk about outside of, you know, the, the kind of close um, email marketing circle of, uh, of experts. Um, is it something that people should be paying more attention to? Uh, are there common mistakes people make? Um, like what should people be like really know kind of uh, table stakes for accessibility? Yeah, I mean, most uh, the most common mistake is not providing alt text on images. Mm. Um, so even as far as like you have your logo at the top of your emails and uh, the, alt, the alt says logo.jpg. Um, and so if somebody is using a screen reader or just has images turned off or is in a place with low reception and can't load images really quickly, um, they are experiencing your alt text or lack thereof. I've gotten entire emails. I post a lot of these on my Twitter. Um, I've gotten entire emails where I, I know who it's from because it says in my inbox, but I'll post like the email itself, the the subject line and the body of the email without images displayed. Who is this from and what are they selling? And no one is guessed right yeah. um, because it's you don't know um, without alt text. So that's like the biggest table stakes opportunity in accessibility. It is something more people have to um, think about. And as marketers, we are not selling to people who are exactly like us. And most of the time, most marketers don't think about accessibility unless they are a person who needs that. Um, And so you have to realize like you're selling to all kinds of people. You're marketing to all different people in all different walks of life. Even though your customers have something that the tie that binds them, they are all very different humans. And um, and you just have to consider like what is that experience for every different person? I heard this story once about um, the people who write uh, the fortunes inside of Chinese uh, fortune cookies. And they said they have to think about what the fortune says and how it might read to an eight-year-old girl who opens it and how it might read to a 32-year-old man. And that same exact fortune, um, like... (laughs) you will meet a dark and mysterious man (laughs) is a very scary thing to an eight-year-old girl. Um, And maybe more interesting to someone in their thirties. So 
it's the same thing. You have to consider all these different possibilities for your emails and know that, I mean, even like you can't really do much about it right now, but like dark mode, um, you know, what is your email going to look like in dark mode? Is your logo of invisible background or transparent background with black text on it? Cause then in dark mm. mode, it's not really, you're not going to see it. Um, so there's so many considerations and that's why you need email specialists because we're the ones who know those things and, to, and think about those things. We think about what is this email going to look like if images are not displayed? Hmm. Yeah. And going back to uh, Fix My Churn, which is sort of mm -hmm. your main business and, and focus right now, and what you've chosen to focus on and sort of deliver on as a consultant and someone who comes in uh, to a company. And you have listed on the website like a few different sort of uh, offerings as a part of sort of the package of what it's like to work together, uh, which is customer interviews, which is what, you know, we talked on email strategy and copywriting. We've talked, we've talked about, we've also have listed things like, um, help docs and mm -hmm. in-app microcopy, um, mm -hmm. and referral and partner programs. Like, could you walk me through how you chose these and how these also fit into the strategy? Yeah. We think about everything that email touches. Um, and what, is out there that is representing your company that can do a better job. So email touches, so, and, and also customer retention. So email is quite often linked to help docs and then help docs are written by engineers who built the feature. And, uh, and what most brands don't think about is that your help docs are Google results. So they're not only things that your existing customers are using, but they're also things that your customers yet to be are finding when they Google search the problem that they're facing and your product. Because mm -hmm. if your feature is a solution, they're going to see that and they're going to read the help doc. And if they don't understand it, or if it doesn't feel connect, like they're connecting to it, they're probably going to choose a different product. Uh, but your help docs are opportunities for marketing, both to your you know, to customers to be, and then your existing customers, your existing customers need to feel a cohesive experience between the email that they just read and the help doc and the website. And so, you know, all of those things are tied together in app copy as well. So that, that micro copy and little tutorials inside the app, um, or in your, on your website, all of that needs to be a cohesive messaging experience. Um, mm. and, Oh, affiliate and referral programs. Those are, they're such, I wish more people cared about those. Um, I think like we launch an affiliate program and we're like, yay, we have an affiliate program. Um, and everyone will just send us so many, so many new customers. Uh, and we send an email about it and then we sit back and wait for them to send us new customers and they don't. And then we're shocked. Um, and, and then affiliate programs are a waste of time. Yeah, we set one up, but nobody uses it. Oh, everybody has a referral link in their dashboard, but nobody uses it. Right. Well, how often do you talk to them about it? How, how often do you talk about the benefits? What do you provide them to make that job easy? Like, are you sending them email copy that they can send out? Are you sending them, uh, you know, social media copy that they can use and images? And like, what are you giving them to make your job easier? So that's a huge play in retention as well uh, and customer retention for subscription brands, because it's, I'm not going to stop using a product if I just told all my friends that it's amazing and mm. that they should use it too. Um, even if I get frustrated with that product, uh, I'm probably less likely to stop using it 
if I've convinced a whole bunch of other people to use it. Right. And if you're financially incentivized as well to, yeah. uh, to keep promoting it and, or to, you know, if you, if you already kind of put a lot of time and effort into it, right. You have that kind of commitment and consistency bias where, um, you don't want to lose all the, you know, the rewards that you've already gotten or the benefits right. that you've already achieved. Yeah. And you know, the idea of like, well, I can keep using this software for free because enough people have joined it, or, um, I can get my next order of this product for free because I've sent enough people, um, my referral link and they've pot, then, you know, it, it creates that kind of endless referral cycle. So they're very important programs. And I think too often we launch them and send an email and forget about it. Or, uh, we put one email immediately post-purchase about it in e-com and then never mention it again, but they don't even have the product in their home yet. So how mm-hmm. do they know? And so right. it's like a, such a, a big opportunity that most people miss. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up here, I want to take a sneak peek into your personal swipe file, as it were, uh, if you mm. know, into some of the examples that Val Geisler finds interesting and exceptional and swipe worthy. Um, could you walk me through a few of your favorites? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many that are very good. Um, so I don't want to like act like nobody's doing email right at all. Um some that I really like, like that Everlane example, uh, I've, I reference that a lot of, you know, where they send a, an image-based email uh, and then they follow it up with a text-based email. Again, that's a, like people learn things, different things in different ways. Maybe they actually did miss that email on Thursday because so much is going on, but then Sunday afternoon, there's not a lot in the email inbox. It's an opportunity for Everlane to come in and say like, hey, did you miss this on Thursday? We have a few pairs left. Um, so, you know, I really like that example. Hmm. Um, another one that I like is um, Book of the Month Club. So hmm. this is in reference to the referral program. They talk about their referral program a lot. Uh, on a regular basis, they share. Um, and actually, one of the subject lines I love is um, forward this email for free books. And it's an email that talks about the referral program. It has the, your unique referral link in it. And it talks about like, literally all you have to do is forward this to a bunch of friends who you think would like book of the month club. Mm. And if enough of them join, we add credit to your account that creates more and more free books for you. Um, so that's really fun. I, I love that. and the, just the fact that they talk about it a lot. Um, and then another one I love is bloom, uh, B L U M E. It's another, uh, e-commerce brand, um, they talk about their referral program often. They talk about the benefits of it. Um, and you know, on the, on the SaaS side, um, there are one that I really love is Rev. Uh, Rev gets a lot of love for their email lately. Um, but it's because they infuse it with so much personality. Like people are excited to read emails from a transcription company. Hmm. Um, it just does like, it doesn't make sense, but I read every single rev email and that includes all their product updates, all their future releases. I know about all of it because of the tone that they've taken in their emails. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty exceptional. I think that, yeah, if you can turn something, it's just one of those examples of like, there's no such thing as a boring industry or a boring product or, you know, something, uh, a brand experience that can't be exceptional, right? It can't be fun. can't be light, can't make a, a relationship or, um, make a connection with their customer base. Yeah, totally. I mean, it doesn't matter how serious your business is. You're still marketing to an individual human on the other side of those emails. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Val, I'm going to have to uh, wrap up here and ask you yeah. my last question. Okay. Maybe next time I'll have to ask you on to uh, uh, talk more about SMS and running an oh, accelerator, yeah. um, being the administrator slash uh, instructor at the new really good email school, I believe, yeah. right, which launched pretty recently. Yeah. Um, but we'll table that for now. And I'll ask my last question, which is what I call my, my Guy Raz question. Um, so for all the things that you've shared, the audience you've built, the success you've had both for yourself and for your client's behalf through email, how much would you say is luck and how much would you say is your own kind of hard work and skill? Oh, wow. Um, I think like 90% hard work. Um, I, I feel like I, you know, a lot of copywriters ask me like, Hey, how did you specialize in email? Like I, I want to do email too, but I've never written any emails for clients. Well, I wrote a whole lot of email teardowns on my blog to show off what I know and to show people mm. examples of my work um, when I didn't have email clients that I was able to share uh, publicly. So I created those opportunities for myself um, and I did a whole lot of work without a lot of return at the beginning. Um, yeah. And I didn't know how successful that was going to be, but I kept at it. So I think it is mostly hard work. Um, I'd say, I almost want to say that the longer I do it, the more I can attribute luck to it, but I, I can't because it all goes back to the hard work at the beginning. So mm. the hard work just is compounding benefits to it. So, um, it's like compounding interest in, in your bank. So uh, you have to put in the work. Um, and then yeah, luck has a bit of, bit of play there. Um, it does in everything in our lives. Um, so there's like a little bit of magic, but mostly hard work. Mostly hard work. Well, Val, it's been awesome having you on. Appreciate you sharing all your wisdom on the email, uh, all things churn reduction, uh, and also sharing a bit more about yourself as well. So thank you for coming yeah. on. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thanks again to Val for coming on and nerding out about all things email marketing. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank Val for me for sharing everything in this episode and let her know what you thought as well. Also, make sure to go download her guide to the dinner party strategy. I'll have the link in the show notes. A few top takeaways for me um, that are really top of mind are, one, email gives you a direct relationship with your audience. And that's really at the crux and the core of the value of email marketing. It's such a fundamental marketing channel for everyone. It's not going to go away anytime soon or even ever. And secondly is her thoughts on using jobs to be done in marketing. And it's absolutely unparalleled. You know, she was one of the first people that really instilled the importance of research for marketing. And that still rings ever more true today. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.